Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Caswell Barry and I'm here with my co-host Stephen Fleming. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask about how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. And today we're very lucky and excited to be joined by Professor Sarah Garfinkel, who is at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience at UCL. And we're lucky to have Sarah because just a few minutes ago, she almost didn't manage to get a computer going because there was ice cream in the headphone socket. <laughs> Outrageous. So this gives you an insight into Sarah's working day. I mean, it is, it is a warm day, so we'll, we'll forgive you for that. Um, but Sarah has done some fantastic work on emotion processing and the coupling between the body and the brain and how this may go awry in clinical conditions. She's also a relatively recent recruit to UCL. So during the pandemic, we managed to lure her away from Sussex, where she was a professor before coming to UCL. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us on Brain Stories. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So perhaps we can start off um, by, if you could say in your own words, a bit about what your research focuses on and what you're working on at the moment. So my research focuses largely on emotion and understanding how we feel from a brain body perspective. So our emotion or feeling states are informed by changes in bodily signals and these interact dynamically with the brain and i'm particularly interested in how these brain body interactions and these mechanisms of emotion may go awry in different clinical and neurodevelopmental conditions so i do a lot of work um, with individuals who are autistic who also have very very high anxiety um, i work also a little bit with schizophrenia um, post-traumatic stress disorder a little bit on depression. Basically, I'm interested in emotions and how some individuals process emotion differently and what the brain-body interactions underlying that might be. Fantastic. Um, so basically the whole clinical spectrum. I think I you named almost every disorder there. No, it's fantastic. It's so many. I know. <laughs> I'm really branching out. I know. I am going a little bit shy about it. So it's really a mechanistic perspective. Like I really love the heart. It's actually the heart. Mm. When I talk about brain-body interactions, it's the heart that I love more than anything. I really, I find it fascinating. I'm slightly shy because it's like brain stories. And um, But really it's the heart that's my biggest passion. And then the heart, of course, dynamically interacts with the brain but you can then look at this particular pathway mechanism in all of these different um, clinical and neurodevelopmental conditions and then you can really see how it's how it's changed um, by understanding it in detail. That, that sounds amazing and slightly intimidating from the perspective of I don't know I just do stuff with rats I mean um, so I, I guess I mean I think I'm going to be the one asking the the naive questions here, I suspect, uh, given this is like right at the edge of sort of my field knowledge. I mean, to what extent are we able to understand what the sort of the normal set of emotions and brain interactions are? I mean, it sounds like you're what, what you mentioned there, sort of um, people with autism who might be anxious and how these things change in schizophrenia. Are we do we have a particularly well characterized normal uh, like set of relations so that we can compare these sort of disease states to that like what's the status quo 
So we're trying to map it out because actually you can tackle the heart from all different perspectives. You can look at the afferent signals themselves. And I think these are getting much more popular as people monitor their heart rate and heart rate variability. Um, so we can just look at the, the signals and how they may be faster in some populations or less variable in other populations. We can also look at how the signals themselves change the way that stimuli are processed. Um, we can look at the precision with which people have access to these signals. We can look at the neural markers of these signals. Um, and we can also look at higher order um, measures relating to how people interpret these signals. And so when I say the heart and brain body interactions, it's really all of these different hierarchical levels from the, the very signals themselves to the neural mapping to the people's precision. And yes, we are starting to get at somewhat normative understanding. I mean, I say normative, I mean, not really, <laughs> like there's massive variation, um, but we are seeing that these, um, the types of variation, depending on what we're talking about, seems to be shifted in these different populations. And could you unpack a little the core hypothesis? So you mentioned emotions earlier. Yeah. So is the unifying idea here is that these afferent signals, the way the heart communicates to the brain, the way that we subjectively interpret that those signals is that that is what you're hypothesizing may underpin a range of different emotional states. That's exactly right. Like I really do think emotion is very much influenced by the body. Um, and we get bodily changes associated with emotional states. And I'm quite William Jamesian in the sense that I do think our thing and it's so embarrassing to cite someone that I'm from like 1800s and he, he, has some, he has some pretty good ideas <laughs> to be fair I did, I did. And he's like he's still the person I cite um but I do very much um subscribe to the notion that our emotional feeling states do arise from the sensing of these bodily changes but what gives emotion the feelingness of it that makes it deviate from cold cognition and I think it's the bodily reactions that come along with that so then we can look at the extent of these bodily reactions we can look at how people's bodies may be more reactive in some conditions than others in some people their brains may have more precise body brain mapping and we can look at body brain interactions um, and we can also look at the precision or accuracy with which people detect these bodily sensations so autism is a really interesting example because autistic individuals will often say they're overwhelmed by things they're overwhelmed by maybe gut problems and body problems they often feel like they're very aware of what's going on in their body but if you actually test them in the lab, they don't have precision and accuracy into these signals. They're noisy, they're overwhelmed by them. So they find it hard to sort of process them with precision. Um, and this maybe contributes to feelings of anxiety um, and a lack of sort of precision about what they and other people are feeling because they don't have this sort of precision into the signals. So that's, that's amazing. So Relative to a control group, uh, say a, a, an autistic group might not be able to gauge their heart rate or changing their heart rate as yeah. accurate. That's, That's what my research shows. Yeah. yeah. So they're not able to. And also, not only that, but their bodily responses sometimes are even larger. So I think one of the things which is so misunderstood about autistic individuals is that it has been said historically that they lack empathy. And actually, I think that's categorically not true. And if you watch, if you monitor the bodily response of someone who's autistic, if they see someone else in pain, they actually have a stronger bodily response. 
they have more bodily empathy to the pain of others. So not only do they lack the precision into the signals, they also have stronger emotional responses themselves in the body. And I think this is really fundamental to trying to understand the nature of autism. That's fascinating. Do you, is there is there an explanation that links those two things that somehow the um the fact that you can't that you're not aware of your um internal state uh or at least you don't have as accurate measurement of the internal state yeah. should somehow feed back and cause larger changes or are these two unrelated phenomena as far as oh, you see i I love that you've asked this question and I feel like I want to bring in Steve. <laughs> like I feel like <laughs> Steve, you can't hide, you're right here. Like <laughs> I'm asking the questions here, Sarah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, Steve's of course an expert in metacognition. And actually the thing that I think about all the time is the relationship between accuracy and so-called awareness. Because we've we've um, actually finished a clinical trial to help autistic individuals feel less anxious. So we taught them to be more accurate about their heart when their heart is beating. And they ha we've, we've given them increased precision to this bodily signal. We've also scanned their brains before and after, and we've seen beautiful changes in brain connectivity in the insula, which is an area um, involved in the um, neural processing and sensing of internal bodily changes, and heightened connectivity between the insula and the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, an area involved in control, and also heightened connectivity between the insula and the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, which is also an area that represents um, physiological arousal. Um, so you're sort of now getting more alignment of physiology and linking it to an area involved in control. So this is what happens when you teach autistic people to be more interceptively accurate. How, um, how do you teach them? I'm curious. What do you, what is that process? Oh yeah. It's again, it's really simple. <laughs> like basically, um, so interception is about the accuracy with which you can sense bodily sensations and it's both a state and a trait phenomenon. So some people are really good. Some people are bad at baseline, but actually we're all good if we run for the bus or watch a horror film because um, it's state dependent as well. So when you make the signals more strong, then there's greater accuracy um, uh, for the heart. So what we did was we just got people to do star jumps or run around the room, something very simple to raise the cardiac signal. And then we did very simple um, uh, tests where we played them tones in sync or out of sync with their heart. Um, and we got people, and so it's really internal, external integration, but they're very, very hard tests to know when a tone is in sync or out of sync with your heart, partly because the tones are always the same um, temporal frequency. You can't get, you can't be accurate because you know the rate of your heart. The tones are the same. They're either just mildly time shifted off or on your heartbeat. Um, uh, and we teach people using these things to be more accurate when their heart is beating stronger and faster. So they're having interceptive feedback um, because they've just done exercise. They're having extraceptive feedback. I'm telling them whether they're correct or incorrect. And also their heart slowly comes back to, to baseline and they're able to stay within this interceptive channel. So we repeated this after six sessions and that's when we saw the connectivity changes in the brain. Moreover, and this is the thing, sorry, I'm now talking far too much, but I've got excited. Um, no, but it's we, great. This is what we, we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Good. But we found drops in anxiety, and we've published this, um, clinic, like uh, significant drops relative to a control group who are also autistic, who also underwent um, 
a different type of intervention. And we found we've now unblinded the one year follow up data and the drops in anxiety remain after one year, which I'm so excited about. But then the link with awareness, which is the question I really wanted to ask Steve, is that we then notice that their accuracy increases, their anxiety decreases. But whereas initially, before they underwent the training, they said they were very aware of bodily sensations. After the training, they then report that they're less aware of bodily sensations. So there's something about the increased accuracy that seems to decrease this awareness measure. And yeah, I don't know yeah, what drives that. Super interesting. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it got me thinking while you were talking there about these predictive processing models of metacognition, yeah. where essentially awareness is like some unexplained prediction. Or you're just aggregating it over over time, mm. and that just feels like okay, I'm aware of something. I don't know what it is, but it's it's unexplained. So I guess your one model of your findings could be that people tune into that at some metacognitive level and then they their system explains away the prediction error they they expect to have their heart beating at the next time step and then that noise gets damped down i mean that's quite hand wavy but that's pretty exciting evidence that that could be the case right that sounds plausible mm-hmm. to me i was thinking about it in terms of sensory surprise which you then reduce with this enhanced precision training mm-hmm. that is cool okay. Presumably, a sort of—I mean, there are very powerful drugs out there that are used to affect sort of heart rates, etc. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm thinking of beta, the obvious things like beta blockers, etc. Interestingly, I think of that because um, a simple, a short segue. I have quite bad at asthma, and I take an inhaler that is a, uh, a beta agonist, so I have anti-beta blockers, um, and you really notice your heart rate goes up and stays up for about half an hour afterwards does make you feel quite anxious it's quite noticeable oh, that's it um, yeah it's like yeah. unless well god this is going to go well off topic unless you do <laughs> unless i do exercise so if i'm riding my bike you don't notice it presumably because it's masked by the normal rise in heart rate or something but um but presumably um going back to you not not me and my bike and asthma um <laughs> but presumably if there's this very strong sort of uh body brain relationship in terms of sort of emotion it sort of suggests or, or at least confirms why some of these sort of relatively sort of simple blunt instrument uh, treatments actually have useful effects. Like, I guess I'm thinking of beta blockers again. Um, is, is there anything else to be said about that? Or is that all, already a sort of well-worn uh, story? Well, it's, it's, it's a story that's sort of been known, but then neglected, I think. Like we knew that dampening down these peripheral signals could help anxiety, but it's, I, and again, maybe I'm biased because I'm so interested in the body now, but I do wonder if we're in some sort of um, uh, sort of revolution of, of revisiting the body signals um, and their interaction with brain to really understand um, mental health. Uh, because if so much about mental health is about changes in emotion, um, you can see that really across all the different conditions in different ways. Um, and if we all do accept that the body is a main driver of emotion, then it's exciting to think that these peripheral signals in the body, which of course do dynamically interact with brain, um, uh, may be uh, less invasive or alternate routes to help make people feel better. On those, along those lines, can I ask a question, uh, I guess a broader question about causality here. So 
and how you think about this and how you unpack it. So I'm thinking like, say I got anxious about, so imagine I'm very fearful of flying and I know I've got to get on a plane in a couple of days and I'm sitting at my desk and then something reminds me about the plane journey. So that, that seems like a, it seems like to start with a relatively cognitive level thing about thinking about the future. And then I get anxious about that, but under your model, that would then involve some bodily inputs. As well. So how, how do you oh, think yeah. about like how that interacts? I mean, I'm, but I get embarrassed, but then I start being really radical. <laughs> so oh, good, I good. Do... <laughs> Let's get you being radical. I like so this. What makes... <laughs> <laughs> so what makes you suddenly think about the plane in the first place? And maybe it's a strong heartbeat, or maybe it's a skip in a heartbeat. Like, I do wonder how much negative, you know, because you know how things just jump into your mind, don't they? Why is that? Um, and actually, you get these fascinating patterns in the heart. The heart does not beat regularly. Um, and maybe those cognitions are elicited through changes in bodily signals um, in the first instance. So they may, first of all, elicit a thought. I would always flip the causality. Um, and then, yes, the cognition may be accompanied by a racing heart as a result, but it's the racing heart which then drives the fear. Interesting. So, so that provides a link then because you have these other beautiful studies where you mentioned them very briefly earlier, where you can, rather than just looking at average heart rate over time or average accuracy over time, you can time lock the presentation of stimuli yeah. to I, the heartbeat. So does that link those two lines of work? Yeah. That you think oh, it that... does. I do all these weird experiments where I time lock exactly um, uh, stimuli to when the heart is beating or in between heartbeats. So what you can do is you can access this heart brain channel because um, when your heart beats at T wave, then it uh, activates baroreceptors, which sends signals to the brain, and then your brain activates in time with each heartbeat. And then it's this particular channel is quiet in between heartbeats. So you can present a stimulus exactly when the heart beats and when the heart and brain are in active communication. And you can present a stimulus in between heartbeats when that channel is quiet. And you can see my work shows that when you present something on the heartbeat, then you can boost fear. And you can boost fear in people who are more anxious. There's something about that channel is hyperactive in anxiety people. And I've also shown I don't know whether I can, whether um, a podcast is the right time to go into a complex fear condition experiment. Yeah. But I do these six, <laughs> is it? I really, it's like a multi-stage one. Um, you've, come to the, you've come to the right podcast. Yeah. This, is, this is the podcast. This is <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So, uh, I, so we, I can present, um, so we present two um, stimuli um, uh, at... Uh, systole when the heart brain channel is active and two stimuli at diastole in between heartbeats and one of those um, will be accompanied by electric shock when the heart beats and one of them will not be and so then a cs plus i, I honestly don't think i can um, well there's a cs plus and a cs minus um, and you can also have a cs plus and a cs minus in between the heartbeats um, but essentially what we can show is that initially well, what would happen typically is that people's fear response would be driven by the stimulus that's accompanied by electric shock. Of course it would be. Um, but what we can show that initially, before people learn those contingencies, actually what's driving the fear response is the stimuli that's happening on the heartbeat. But that has a bigger fear response. 
Um, and not only that, um, when you bring people back the next day after you've conditioned them and extinguished them, the fear response is highest to stimuli that were, that were presented on the heartbeat, irrespective of whether they were accompanied by an electric shock or not. So it turns into a fear stimulus by virtue of his association with the heartbeat itself, and it drives memory. It is, I mean, that's fascinating. Is, is, is there something special about the timing of fear evoking stimuli or is it is this even more general are you uh you know it is do you perceive any stimuli that comes on the heartbeat as being more potent or more you know is it just more i, I can't remember the psychological oh, term gosh, no normally what? you dampen down it's so the opposite, I see. The opposite. Okay. yeah yeah so, so if i give you electric shocks so i make it sound like i give loads of people electric shocks <laughs> i mean i give some electric shocks <laughs> But it's not the only thing I do. But if we give you electric shocks um, on your heartbeat, then actually you'll have less of a muscle in EMG response to a shock on your heartbeat. You actually get a dampening down of processing. Um, uh, and so typically, and also somatosensory perception, um, so thresholds for how sensitive you are to touch on the skin, you're actually less sensitive um, when your heart and brain are in active communication. So I sort of think about it, about what's being prioritized. So when internal information is being prioritized, the, the brain is registering the heart, then you get this dampening down of extraceptive um, processing uh, and fear seems to be an, a p potential exception to that. So just, just to go back to the playing example, yeah. I, it feels- I feel like though... I should add something here. I want to know, are you really afraid of flying? <laughs> Me? Yeah, is this just I'm not example? actually. I, love, I was going to come I, around I, your I, desk and make like noises no, of planes. No, no, no. I, 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 I feel very conflicted about flying because I actually love flying, but then I'm conflicted about it with carbon footprint. So I actually get very excited like a kid going on a plane. Um, so this is not me talking here. I'm using it as a, a you know, potential example. Um, but I guess the, the content, you can only... The content must come from somewhere. So that, so I'm just wondering what your mechanistic model is here. So, is the idea that the kind of ascending input could push you down a particular channel, like it's relatively content-free, but it kind of pushes the brain into yeah. a mode where it will sample from more negative stuff? Or how, how do you think about that? Um, the mechanistic influence, I guess, that, that, the, that drives the this of the yeah. ascending. Um... Okay, so the afferent signals. Um, so, uh, so why do I think it occurs? So I think they, we know the roots, like they are, they're mapped out um, by people other than me who do sort of animal work, um, but you, you can track the, the pathways. Um, so you have baroreceptors which are activated um, and you get signals up the NTS um, and lamina one, and you get ultimate projections in a variety of brain areas from the LC to the thalamus, to the VMPFC, to the insula, to the amygdala. And so these activate in time with these um, cardiovascular signals. And I sort of see the brain acting as like carrier waves. So when you have fear processing that sort of matches those types of signals, then you get this boost or you can get the sort of suppression effect. So I sort of see them. So we know that they're the dynamic um, effects. That's how the heart communicates the brain. They're the types of signals which then manifest, and then processing either is in accordance with it or they dominate. Is 
so we talked a lot about the heart. Would this also be true, yeah. or do you expect these phenomena are true for things like breathing and other any yeah. any other like cyclical body phenomena, basically? Oh well, this is a nice. I love the uh, yes. So um, uh, I we think so. So just after I published a paper showing that fear processing changes at different parts in the cardiac cycle, um, someone else, um, a Chicago group published. I think it was Chicago published the respiratory cycle and showing that fear changes at different parts of the respiratory cycle. So very complementary, and we know. So I love that because it was sort of supporting each other's work using these different systems, and we know that one of the main causes of heart rate variability at rest is respiratory cycle because the respiratory systems and the um, cardiac system are very much interlinked. So yeah, it does, and it also seems to be um, dependent on the type of processing. So yeah, um, Camilla Nord, who's done really cool work in Cambridge, has um, given people drugs to dampen down um, uh, rhythms in the stomach, and she shows changes in how people process disgust. Um, uh, when you change. So I think probably everything, you have all of these beautiful oscillations in the body and depending on the organ and then how they're interacting with the brain, they'll then shape different types of processing in accordance with the organ in question. Mm, that's so cool. And and do you, do you think this is, uh, broadly speaking, do you, think, do you view this as a bug or a feature in terms of why would evolution have set it up this way? Because I could imagine it would be, evolutionarily better to just always be kind of have a baseline high level of responsiveness to things that might kill you but if if like i get a dip when my heart isn't beating then that seems suboptimal so i'm just wondering why why is it set up like that because i think it's i think the on and off the heartbeat is mechanistic insights into a more general system so when you're um uh running from a bear in the woods and your heart is beating strong and fast and it puts the brain into a state where you then are prioritizing the processing of fear, you're hypersensitive to it. Mm. Um, but also you can run over broken twigs that are making your foot bleed because your pain sensitivity thresholds are low. Um, so it's really about a chronic system that you can also check at a moment to moment basis, but it also biases the body for different types of processing at a more chronic level as well. Makes sense. Awesome. I have so many questions, but I feel like we're going to run out of time unless we ask you some questions that we also like to ask on Brain Stories about how you got into this in the first place. Um, so when did you, well, I guess two questions. One is when did you first get interested in psychology, neuroscience more broadly? And the second question would be, when did you first get interested in the heart and the body? So I think I was always... Well, actually, not always. So um, my A-levels were art, history, and physics. Um, and uh, I really didn't. And I went to a, a really, really bad school, like an inner London school, where um, it was really tough. Like, it wasn't, we, none of us did that well. And, phys and I actually loved physics the most. I was so obsessed with physics. But we didn't do much physics in class. Um, and, <laughs> and I actually got a U in my practical. Um, so the first time I ever did a practical exam was in the actual exam, like we didn't have any mocks oh and I was like rolling little cars down and I just had no idea what I was doing. So physics didn't go to plan. 
and I really loved history and I really loved art and I thought it was like I just don't know but I also love people um uh so I said so I made a side switch to psychology um uh thinking that I might want to be a clinical psychologist ultimately uh and then I found out that while I do I, I don't know that I'm not while I do desperately want to help people I'll I'm probably too emotional. I'm just being too honest now. Like I'm very emotional, so I feel other people's pain and sadness very deeply. And I thought crying and being distressed. I think I could make more of an impact from a research perspective than a clinical perspective. So my way of um, helping people instead of doing clinical psychology is the clinical research one step removed. Mm. Um, but actually my PhD wasn't, although I would have been very happy to do it in a clinical topic, my PhD was actually looking at the effects of alcohol on memory. Um, so uh, it was very, very fun, but it just involved getting students drunk and looking at their memories, <laughs> which, which was an amazing three years. But then I, I really then did want to make it have a clinical focus. So after that, I did a first postdoc, which is really retraining, looking at memory and post-traumatic stress disorder um, to, in um, uh, Detroit, uh, in America, working with people with PTSD. And there I was just focusing on the brain to try and understand fear in the brain, fear memories in the brain. And it was working with those individuals where I also noticed all these hyper-reactivity signals in the body, um, racing hearts, autonomic sweat responses. And I just thought you can't study fear just looking at the brain that you have to look at the body as well and that's when i retrained in autonomic neuroscience with uh, the amazing hugo critchley um uh, at sussex it's, it's so interesting no one has a journey straight through this is the one no. thing <laughs> this is the one thing this podcast has taught me is I, yeah. you used to have this perception that's surrounded by people who are like i've always wanted to be a neuroscientist um, and that was quite off-putting. But actually, what we've learned is, I don't think a single one of the people who've been on here have been like, that's what I want to do. It's always been an interesting and variable journey. I also must confess this thing. When you were saying, oh, I, I studied during my, my PhD was on um, feeding people alcohol and testing uh, the effects. You weren't a PhD student at the ICN, were you, by any chance? Because if you are, no, thank God for that. So I once did someone's experiment when I was a PhD student there, but I'd just come back from Glastonbury. And I was like already quite drunk at the point when they were giving me the alcohol. I was quite guilty about that for some time. And I thought, I was like, oh, it wasn't you, was it? Yeah, it's so funny. It wasn't me, but I had so many uh, participants just like you. Because it was like, genuinely, I think word got out that if you did my experiment, not only would you get paid, 20 pounds for participating that we also gave you lunch and alcohol so um uh, it, was, it was a really popular study yeah i can see, yeah, yeah, I can yeah. see why not, not hard not hard to get participants through the door <laughs> for those ones um so and did you so with that trajectory also another interesting observation is that i, I feel like a lot of psychologists who we've had on have done a blend of arts and science like you mentioned physics and then art and history and you're kind of trying to chart a path through there and i feel like psychology is often a place where people end up who are interested in the art side the the human side of things but then have a scientific um uh, you know they want that scientific underpinning as well so it sounds like that blend that you hit upon at a level the practical experience notwithstanding um seem like to be a natural feeder into psychology you know what 
I'm going to go further. I want to ask. I want to add to what Steve just said. So, what while you were just saying what you you said, I was thinking. You know, this is so. You're so going against the sort of the Descartes, the Cartesian view of like the duality of body, body and mind. I'm wondering whether is that do you put that down to the arts background that you like this this you know the the emotional side of the human spirit is so much more present in art. I I think it's probably a mixture of a few things. I, such an interesting question. Yes, I think it's maybe about to do art you create, and as there is a creativity streak in that. I think it also. I do think my education was helpful for me because it made me think for myself. Like uh, it was so rowdy in class. Um, that sometimes you just sort of had to sit in the corner and think um, and try and work it out and come up with your own explanations that might not have really necessarily made sense. So I think there was, instead of just being taught how to do things, I think there was a real streak of independent thought that you had to do just to sort of survive in that school. Um, And then I think the final thing is that I am a bit dyslexic. Um, uh, like from age eight, I was going to Bart's hospital before dyslexia was even a big thing, um, quite regularly because I was just, I had sort of unusual patterns of, of different things. And I think the dyslexia thing as well, it made it hard to learn as well. And not only the school, but just, it just was a, it was a real challenge. So I'd have to try to figure things out on my own sometimes at my own speed. Um, and I think it, I think it's probably an amalgamation of the school, the dyslexia, the creativity and art side as well, all sort of mashed together um, to, to be helpful in the end. And did you, or do you remember a decision point about academia? Did you have a point where you thought, yeah, an academic career is for me, or is this something you kind of fell into um, so the way? Weird- the really honest truth is that um, I finished my undergraduate and I that someone had dropped out of the PhD position um, and what they did the, was... The alcohol PhD. Yeah, no, no, well, actually, yeah. not actually. <laughs> it actually dropped out of the MDMA PhD. Oh, wow, <laughs> okay. You got second I want prize. to know why they dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually my friend Jessica because I knew her. She she got into fast track civil service, um, and what they did was they just happened to have marked at that point. The only thing they'd marked was the presentation for the dissertations, and the only two people to get top marks were me and Jessica. So I got this phone call, which my parents then teased me about for ages. They used to play ring ring. Do you want a PhD? Because I phoned, the phone just rang one day and they were just like, well, we've got this spare PhD place. Um, and actually, it really was life changing because I'd come from this background and I was a bit dyslexic and I didn't perform that well in exams. But actually, I don't think I ever would have had the confidence to apply for a PhD position. Um, but it was research that I really fell in love with rather than the exam stuff. And it was the research um, that got me the PhD. And I, that really probably was my biggest life changing moment. That's amazing. That's really amazing. It's really good to hear. It's also this thing I feel that we're sort of incre- is increasingly. It feels like that's much less likely to happen these days. That the sort of the channels are much more sort of strict and laid out to get like, and maybe we're missing something because of results. If, if you know, if 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 someone like you feels that they maybe wouldn't be able to, wouldn't have made that decision themselves, or maybe wouldn't have got to this position, like the same thing wouldn't happen now. Then we're 
we're really doing something right. I I really believe that, especially as dyslexic. Some evidence suggests that dyslexic brains develop a bit later, um, uh, and I spe- and neurotypical de- brains develop a bit later as well. And actually, it's it's in these people who think a bit different where potentially you get magic happening um, and that can take more time for it to shine and manifest and those who do really well in exams very early on and able to learn um, things which are taught to them won't necessarily be the ones that are the creative experimentalists that create the paradigm shifts Um, and I do do some mentoring um, for uh, uh, individuals, as I know lots of people do at UCL, it's one of the things I love about being here, um, to help people who maybe didn't have the same advantages and starts as other people, to help them feel that they have the confidence and mentor them along the way so they we don't they don't drop out. Because I do feel like it's really in diversity that we can, um, yeah, really build and understand. Okay, so we're almost out of time, Sarah. This has been absolutely fantastic. Um, we'd like to finish off by just asking you um, what you're currently working on now. What do you think the f- the field holds for the next year or two of your research? Well, I'm really excited because I've just got a major grant. Um, so four, over four million from the Wellcome Trust um, to run along with Camilla Nord, uh, yeah, a new grant. So- Wow, fantastic. Congratulations. Thank can you, you can you tell us a bit about the, the yeah. plans? Yeah, so it's it's really trying to understand um emotion from the perspective of bodily signals. So it's looking at emotion granularity, so knowing what type of emotion you're feeling, emotional awareness and your capacity to control your emotions. Um in regard to all different bodily systems, looking at the gut, looking at the heart, looking at respiration, monitoring those signals, both in the body and the brain and their interactions. Um, uh, And then looking at modulating different systems in the body to see if we can change the way that people process, control and understand their emotions. And then the final phase is a really big clinical trial in mindfulness. because mindfulness can be used to treat depression and anxiety, but it doesn't help everyone. Um, it helps some people, they love it. Some people it doesn't help at all and some people can even get worse. And it's to understand whether mindfulness may work through um, body-based um, signals. So pr- controlling the signals in your body, the precision with which you can detect them, interpret them, and whether that actually predicts whether mindfulness is efficacious or not. And we're going to also try augmenting mindfulness using interceptive mechanisms to help um, people with depression and anxiety. So uh, that's that's a seven years of funding. So that's that's the main thing. But there's lots of exciting other side projects along the way, um, uh, collaborating with a skilled cardiologist um, uh, to look at uh, heart brain interactions. Um, uh, I have a even though I only joined UCL two and a bit years ago, I've amassed an exciting lab of PhD students all working on different projects from ADHD and emotion to computational modeling of interceptive signals to heart-brain interactions using MEG. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, UCL really is a wonderful place to do research. We're not going to let you go quite yet. We are about to wrap up. But before we do, I get to ask the question that we ask everyone. And here it is. What's your favourite fact about the brain? 
so I feel like I'm going to be some sort of brain traitor because actually <gasps> I'm so sorry because actually I just although I started reading my training as a neuroscientist I think the heart may be a driver so I'm going to give you heart facts is that allowed uh, we'll, yeah. we'll give you a pass this time we'll, is we'll, there a yeah. pass we'll let it through. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I mean conditions that were typically only seen in regard to brain disorders such as schizophrenia um actually you see changes in the heart before you see any symptoms of schizophrenia. So you can see in longitudinal healthy sample, cardiac changes happen first. Um, and you can also look at cardiac morphology and show that that actually serves as a risk factor for schizophrenia. And you can also look at, um, uh, for example, how statins, so drugs that act on the cardiovascular system can actually be protective for schizophrenic and bipolar episodes. Um, so all of this, so things which were typically, like schizophrenia is like a typical brain condition, actually there's really exciting data from the heart saying that that could be a driver. Amazing. I'm glad we let the heart questions through. Those, those okay. were some of the best facts. Yes, great. <laughs> that was great. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Sarah, for joining us on this episode of Brain Stories. It's been really excellent to have you with us. Um, and we'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully fledged podcast. We'd like to thank Patrick Robinson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Please follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes. See you next time.